Dr. David Lowry worked with Dave Wurtson at Midlothian Bible Church from its beginning. He taught for 42 years at Dallas Theological Seminary in New Testament, and it's our privilege for the next three weeks to share Dave's teaching gift with you as he teaches us from Ephesians 2. He begins his message, God's New Creation, on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, with a group of children. If there are any elementary school children who would like to help me identify a picture of a bird, and we'll talk together about that. If you would come on up to the front, I'll give everybody a chance to look at this picture and see if you can tell me what kind of bird this is. When I was in elementary school, we used to sing a song about this bird. I'd never seen this bird. We used to sing a song about it from countries around the world. And I asked Mr. Branscombe if it was still in the elementary school song curriculum, and he said it is. So some of you may have sung this song as well about this bird, although you've probably never seen it because it only is in two parts of the world, Australia and New Guinea. And this summer, my wife and I uh, celebrated a wedding anniversary, and I realized it fell on a day when I had committed to be involved in a pastor's conference speaking. This happened to be on an island in the South Pacific. So I said to my wife, come along, and after the conference, we will visit some other parts of the world nearby, including Australia and New Zealand. So while there, we visited the zoo. Now, some of you may, re may know about the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin. We visited his zoo, and I took a picture of this bird who was at Steve's zoo being held by one of the workers. And that afternoon, after we left the zoo, we uh, were driving south towards Sydney and stopped in the city of Brisbane. This was wintertime in Australia, and so we wanted to see the city gardens that had a lot of camellias blooming. So we, we stopped and walked into the city garden in Brisbane, and while we were there, I saw this same bird sitting up in a tree, watching us as we walked across the garden. So the next day, while we were traveling south, we stopped in a little town, and I saw this picture. It's a painting of this bird. So if the photograph didn't help, maybe this will. This is a picture of the bird made in a, a watercolor artist did this. And the reason I'm thinking about that is our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And there, God compares what he's doing to us to a new creation. He says we are God's workmanship, or as the New Living Translation has it, we are his masterpiece. God is at work to change us, to make us a different people, to make, as it were, a new creation from us. And this beautiful bird reminds me of God's new creation. Anybody have any idea what kind of a bird this is? It's a kookaburra, a kookaburra. Does anybody remember the song you used to sing, or maybe you still do? Those of you who went to elementary school, join in if you'd like. Remember how the song goes? Kookaburra sits in an old gum tree. Learn that song. Merry, merry king of the bush is he. Laugh, kookaburra, laugh, kookaburra, gay your life must be. I didn't actually hear the kookaburra laugh, but um, that's what a kookaburra looks like. So the next time you sing that song, you say, I've seen a picture of a kookaburra, and anytime you want to come and visit my house, I've got this hanging on the wall. You can see a painting of a kookaburra. 
But thanks for identifying that and for helping out this morning. Harry Ironside was one of the great Bible teachers of the last century. He was born in Canada. In fact, I went on the internet this week just to get some details about his life. Punched in Harry Ironside, and the search came up with almost 8,000 hits. I only looked at the first five. That was enough for me. I got all the information I needed to find out about Harry Ironside. Harry was a fella born Henry Allen Ironside in Toronto, Canada, to parents of Scotch ancestry. And uh, both his parents were committed Christians, involved in ministry there. But Harry's father died when he was just a young fellow, and his mother was left with Harry, the oldest boy, and then a younger brother, two years younger. When Harry was 10, his mother decided there were better prospects for supporting the family if they emigrated from Canada and went to California. So at the age of 10, Harry found himself with his mother in Los Angeles. And while there, he completed grammar school. Eighth grade, graduated, and Harry said, that's the end of school for me. I'm going to work. I'm going to help out with the family. So the eighth grade was the end of his formal education. Well, during that year, he worked in a photography shop, began to read the Bible over and over and over again. And he went out one evening to a party. He came back. And he said, I think the Lord wants to hear from me. So he got down by the side of his bed, and he said, Lord, save me. And Harry says at the age of 13, he came to faith in Christ, a relationship with Christ. He said, it wasn't any great emotional experience. He said, I took the Lord at his word and rested that he would do what he said he would do. Well, in the next year, Harry decided to get a little more involved in ministry, 14 years of age, he went and joined the Salvation Army who were involved in street meetings, that sort of thing. He kept his job, but he was involved with the Salvation Army, preaching uh, when they gave him occasion, giving a testimony on the street, served with the Salvation Army for some 10 years before becoming involved more in wider Bible teaching across California, ultimately ended up being the pastor of a prominent church in Chicago, and for the first 20 years of Dallas Seminary, was a regular Bible teacher who would come to teach at the seminary. Eighth grade education. Ended up writing some 60 books. And I pulled out his commentary on Ephesians this week when I was at the seminary. And Harry relates this story related to this chapter we're looking at this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians. He said he was on writing public transportation in Los Angeles when uh, an unusual-looking woman got on the car with him and came and sat beside him. She had a bandana on her head, spangles across her forehead, was wearing a shawl, and looked like her clothes had been put together with uh, handkerchiefs or something, and Harry said she was definitely a different-looking woman. And she said to him, Sir, if you'll cross my palm with a quarter, I'll tell you what your future is. And Harry said to her, can you really do that? I'm, I'm, a, I'm out of a Scotch background. I'm a Scotsman. I never part with money unless I think I can get good value for it. Can you really tell me my future? She said, I can not only tell you your future, I can tell you your past if you'll just put a quarter into my hand. And Harry said he was en route actually to a meeting, had his Bible with him, and he said, well, thanks, but I already know what my past, what my present, and what my future is. In fact, it's written in a book. Would you like me to read it to you? 
And he said the lady was about to rise and move on to another customer, so he hooked her arm and said, let me read this to you. And he read this passage we're going to be looking at this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. He said, let me tell you what my past is. And he read the first three verses. And this is from the New English translation I'm reading this morning. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you formerly lived according to this present world path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Harry said, that was my past. And it's written down in a book. Now let me tell you what my present is and what I'm looking forward to. My present's described in these next verses, four through six. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace. Now, Harry said, this is both my present and my future now. This is where I'm headed. This is what is true for me. God's going to demonstrate the surpassing wealth of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It is not of works, so that no one can boast. And finally, verse 10 kind of summarizes it all, pulls it all together. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. And Harry said at this point, the lady could stand his recitation no longer. She got up, walked down the aisle of the public car, and said, I chose the wrong man. I chose the wrong man. And Harry went on to say, but thanks be to God, he chose me. And that reflects my past and my future and what my destiny is. That is true for all of us who know the Lord as a personal Savior, who, like Harry, have cried out, Lord, save me. And God, by his grace, intervenes in our lives. Let's start at the end of this passage, because verse 10 is something of a summary, and it relates to what we talked about with the children just a little bit ago. This word, we are his workmanship. Some of you may have a slightly different translation of that. It's an interesting Greek word. It only occurs two times, and both in Paul's writings. Here, it refers to God at work in us as his people to make us ultimately into the image of Christ. That's our destiny. That's the glory that awaits us, to be a people who are like Christ. I don't think we'll recognize each other in some respects when we see each other in glory. We'll stand back and say, is this indeed so-and-so? And they'll probably look at me and say, and you are David Lowry? Amazing. I can't believe it. You're so different. But that's our destiny, to be a glorified people, to be wonderfully transformed. And Paul's arguing we are even now a people in process moving toward that. We are, he says, his new creation. This word occurs one other place, and it's in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says, as you look at the world around you, you see the handiwork of God. You see what testifies to his character, 
and to his grace and to the reality of God in our midst. So both the natural world, and Paul says the spiritual world, the world of those who know Christ as their Savior, are a people who are showing forth the handiwork, the grace, the glory of God. Some years ago, I was sitting at my desk doing some work. It was about this time of year. If you walk out in the mornings this time of year, you see these garden spiders spinning these great big webs. I mean, some of them, I have one, I walked down the lane to take out my trash, and I came back this week and looked up there, and this spider had spanned trees some 20 feet apart, had put this great web out there, and the dew was on it, the sun was shining, and I thought, amazing that that spider can do that sort of thing. Well, a couple of years ago, I was sitting at my desk, and I heard this squeaking and squealing just outside my window. And I thought, what? It's happening. And it sounded like a little bird. So I walked outside and looked, and there, a little ruby-throated hummingbird, a male, got hung up in this spider web. And the poor guy was squeaking like mad, and by the time I got to him, he was just about exhausted. I think he'd probably said, that's it, I'm done for, I'm not getting out of here. So I walked over to him, and he no doubt had come to try and get some nectar from this obelia bush. This is the season when hummingbirds are on their way south. They're all heading to Mexico or, or uh, Central America. So this guy was probably stopping, get a little refreshment and root, and he was just worn out. So I went, pulled him out of that web, put him in my hand, just a little green character there. He looked like a little green mummy because he was all wrapped up in the spider web. So I started taking off the cobwebs. And by the time I got him all cleaned up, he just had no strength, no energy. I thought, oh, this poor guy isn't going to make it. He just kind of lay there. So I said, well, maybe I can help him. I took him inside the house, put him on a piece of newspaper there on the table, and made up a little sugar and water concoction for him. And by the time I got back to him, he was actually moving around a little bit. His eye was open. So picked him up, gave him a little water. Pretty soon he was sitting on my finger, drinking this water. And by that time, Deb and the kids had come home, so we kind of passed this little hummingbird all around us. And he would just sit there, drink. After about 10, 15 minutes, started getting his energy back. We started hearing this little flapping of the wings. They, they flap their wings about 50 or 60 times a second when they're on the move. And pretty soon, I said, we better get this guy outside because he's going to take off in the house. So we took him out to the patio. We went out there with him more than two minutes, and boom, he was gone. A few days later, I was uh, watering some new plants, trying to get them ready for the fall. We're just holding a hose here, admiring the sun shining through this water. Uh, you know, I'm a, kind of a different sort of guy, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> my idea of beauty and entertainment is fairly simple, but uh, here I was <laughs> holding this hose, and this little hummingbird, a little hummingbird came flying up, and it was like he said, hold that water still there, buddy, I want to get a drink. And he put his head in, went like this for a while. I don't know if it was the same bird or not, but um, pretty soon, boom, he was gone and never saw him again. Well, I thought about how beautiful creation is. It's, it's, a, it's a marvelous thing to think about all that God has done in this world. Even this fallen world is a beautiful thing. Can you imagine what the world must have been like in the Garden of Eden before sin, before the fall? before a curse came upon this world. Uh, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the world was formless and void. It uses the Hebrew words tohu vabohu. And out of this wasteland, out of this mass of nothingness, as it were, 
God created this beautiful world. I, I reflected upon that as I read through this passage because what Paul does is in some ways say, and God has done the same thing with humanity. He has taken a people mired in darkness and sin and accomplished a beautiful thing. And that's really where he's going in this passage. These verses 2, 1 through 10 narrate what God started with, as it were, and it's not a pretty picture. We'll look at it here momentarily in these first three verses. What he's doing in terms of bringing us now into a relationship with Christ and what our destiny is. Let's go back and look at these verses just a little more. Notice how Paul begins this verse. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And by that he means we were a people cut off from relationship with God. We did not have the capacity nor were we at all interested in a relationship with God. This describes the human situation. It's true for all of us, he says. Verse 2, in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path. There are three things that attempt to come between us and a relationship with God. One's the world, the values, the practices of this present age. We live in a fallen world, and its message to us is basically, don't want anything to do with God. You don't need God. You can do it yourself. You're on your own. Paul says, that's the spirit that was a part of this age in which we lived, and we accepted it. We, we were part of it. That's the way in which we lived our lives. Notice he also says, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. We're also, Paul's going to tell us, especially in chapter 6, somewhat more fully, there is a spiritual opponent that seeks to frustrate what God is doing in this world. He is referred to elsewhere as the God of this world, and that is the enemy, Satan, the devil, and those associated with him. Earlier in chapter 1, in this letter, Paul has said, Christ is above all dominion, all principalities, and all powers. He is the all-powerful one. But he has not yet banished these enemies of our soul. They remain opposed to God and his people. And Paul says, they likewise conspired to keep us, as it were, in the dark, to hide the light of the gospel, as he says in 2 Corinthians. So it's not only the world, it's Satan and those associated with him. And then verse 3, among whom all of us also formerly lived our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is the third enemy that remains with us, and that is we live in these mortal fallen bodies, what the scripture calls the flesh. We have an orientation toward this world. And Paul basically says God has come to give us the spirit of God to lead us in a different direction. Our destiny as people of flesh is wrath and judgment, he says here. This is where we are headed. But God, by his grace, Paul argues, has intervened. He has made a change. The flesh remains with us. The enemy of our souls, Satan, it's, we're still in a spiritual warfare, as Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 6, and he's going to urge that we be vigilant in that. And we live in a fallen world. All those things remain. One day they'll be banished, but for now, they remain. Paul says, nonetheless, it's out of that wasteland 
that God has saved us. That's our past. For those of us who know the Lord as a personal Savior, Paul says, that's our past. We have been removed from those constraints. We've been set free from that kind of tyranny. We have the capacity now to say yes to God and no to what formerly enslaved us. So Paul says, here's the past. This is what God has done to change us and transform us. Let me read you an email. This is an email that came from Paul Weaver. He's now serving in Hungary and teaching in a school there. He says this. This came just last week and relates his first few weeks in Hungary and his experience there. He was involved in a class with students on personal evangelism. He says at the end of the week, they went into the city of Budapest to do some open-air evangelism. And he says this, as a Bible school staff member in a big city with a lot of students, I was trying to look out for our students. I saw one gal, Rika, away from the crowd in tears. I was concerned for her and approached her asking if she was all right. She said that she was crying out of joy. Rika proceeded to tell me what had just occurred. She stopped a man about to enter a store to steal some food. She began to share the gospel message with him, and he told her that he was in prison for many years because he killed his best friend who had raped his wife. This convicted murderer placed his faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. He and Rika were both crying out of joy for what the Lord had done. A man who could testify to the reality of sin's constraint in his life, sin's effect upon him. But a man who recently was liberated from that, set on this path now, and his destiny is completely different as a result of hearing the gospel, being responsive to it. He was a man who said, Lord, save me. And God, by his grace, saves people who call on his name. We sang John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. The story of Newton is a rather remarkable story in that he went away from home as a young English boy to serve in the uh, merchant marine and became himself very involved in life at sea and, as he described it himself, a, a very vile, vulgar person. Newton says he could swear for an hour without repeating himself. And he says, he, utterly debauched, as it were, in his own life, ultimately he remembered, though, a word his mother told him as he went off to sea, and that was, John, if you need a Savior, call on Jesus. Newton tells a story of being one time in the midst of a great uh, storm at sea, and he said many of the sailors were despairing that they would get out of the situation. And he heard one man exclaim and take the Lord's name in vain concerning this storm. Something to the effect of, Christ, what a storm. And Newton said that man's words reminded him in the most uh, unusual way of what his mother said. John, when you need a Savior, you call out to Jesus. And Newton said at that moment... His response was, Lord, save me. Same as Harry Ironside. And he said, by God's grace, he did. Now, Newton says it was a while before his life actually was released from some of the sin that held him down. But ultimately, he went on to become a pastor and a hymn writer in England. And when he wrote this hymn about God saving a wretch like me, that was more than metaphor. That was a reality in his experience. And Paul says, to one degree or another, it's true for all of us. That describes who we are. But by God's grace, we can be a transformed people. 
That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. And he looks at this now in verses 4 through 6, really. We might describe this as our present, and yet it also relates to our future. And all of it is related to the fact that we now have a relationship with Christ. He says, God being rich in mercy. It's a favorite word for Paul. What God did, he didn't have to do. We didn't deserve it. But out of his mercy for us, the undeserved favor of God, what also is referred to as grace, he acted to deliver us from our dilemma, from our plight, from the constraints of the powers of evil that were arrayed against us. God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions. That is, this did characterize us. And dead people are powerless to help themselves. But God acted on our behalf. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And the way in which Paul writes this, he uses a form of a word in which he says, God began this process. He's not done with us yet, but it's sure of completion. The results of what God did continue and ultimately will be finalized. We have been saved, and he's saying from beginning to end, this is a matter of the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God. And then he says this, he raised us up with him, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, I think this is Paul's way of saying, where Christ is, that's our destiny. And because of our relationship with him, it's as if we're already there. It's a sure and certain thing. Not only have we been momentarily delivered from these powers of the world, from sin and Satan and the flesh, but one day we are destined to be like Christ, a transformed people. As he says in Philippians, this body of our humiliation one day will put on likeness to his glorious body. Where he is is where we shall be. That's our destiny. And Paul says, it is by the grace of God that we can testify to that fact, that we can hold on to that and claim that and look forward to it. We have a relationship with Christ that nothing, he says, can come between. He will accomplish his purpose. And this is our future then, in verses 7 and following, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are going to be illustrations like maybe the kookaburra is an illustration of the, the wisdom, the beauty, the humor of God, so we shall be illustrations of God's grace and of his power and of his glory. When we see one another, we will stand back in awe and say, what a great God we serve. Our singing together, our worship together, is something of a prelude to that. In many of the hymns that we sing, many of the choruses we sing, we do so in some measure in anticipation of what is ahead of us. And as a reminder and an encouragement to go forward, to go on, to continue to be faithful in the calling that we've received. Paul says, the hope that is before us sustains us in the present, enables us to patiently endure, to keep going forward. But this is our destiny, to be trophies of the grace of God. And then in verse 8, he comes back to what he has affirmed before. For by grace you are saved through faith. What's the means of this? All we do is rely upon God to do what he says he will do. Faith is essentially saying to God, I believe you. I trust that you are one who will act in accordance with your word. You've described me as a sinner, and I am. 
You've said Christ has come to deal with my sin. I believe that. You've said if I call upon you, you'll save me. You'll bring me into relationship with yourself. I believe that. Save me, Lord. It's a simple prayer. But it is a prayer which has saved people down through the ages. The Philippian jailer asked Paul, What must I do to be saved? And Paul's response, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's nothing we are called to do other than trust and rely upon what God has done for us in Christ. That's the essence of salvation. And that's why Paul says, it's by grace. He doesn't call us to make a pilgrimage anyplace. He doesn't call us to perform some great feat. The great feat has been done by God and Christ in our behalf. And we rely upon that and receive that by faith. It's not of ourselves, he says. It's the gift of God so that none of us will boast. We, he says in verse 10, are his workmanship. God has begun a process in which he is more and more, and our gathering together is a part of that process, shaping us in terms of how we think, our worship of him, and he wants to shape us in terms of how our lives are going to look in relationship with one another in this world in which we live. Notice how verse 10 ends. He says, we are his workmanship, having been created. Notice again this language. God is at work to do this. He is creating us. He is making us a new people in Christ Jesus. And for what purpose? For good works. Now, Paul's not saying good works gain us a standing with God or in any way merit this work of salvation that we experience. But we are nonetheless called to live a life that he says is characterized by good works. What those are are going to be detailed for us as we read through Ephesians, especially beginning in chapter 4, 5, and 6. Paul uses a word there. He'll say, we should walk in love in relationship to one another. We should walk in holiness. We should walk to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How we should conduct our lives is going to detail in chapters 4, 5, and 6. That is where God wants to take us. That is why God is at work in us, that we will display in our life, in our relationship with one another, this new creation which has begun. And again, Paul's going to argue, nothing in and of ourselves can we do to bring this about. It's a relationship of faith and availing ourselves of God's provision for us. God has a destiny for us. He's prepared beforehand where we're going, what we should do, And his calling is that we indeed walk in them. Let me conclude with another Harry Ironside story. I got on that web page and figured, I'm going to read a few of these things. And this one intrigued me, and it relates to what we're talking about. Uh, Harry died in the 50s. He was actually on a preaching tour of New Zealand. And uh, he died there and, in fact, was buried in New Zealand. And a fellow wrote a biography of his life shortly thereafter, a fellow named Schuyler English. And he gives a little excerpt here about a debate Harry was engaged in at one point in connection with a street meeting in San Francisco. Let me read this to you as we close. One Sunday afternoon, Mr. Ironside was walking along Market Street, noticed a sizable crowd gathered at the corner of Grant Avenue. He realized by the sound of the band and the singing that this was a Salvation Army meeting and he joined the circle of people to enjoy the music and testimonies. The Lassie captain knew him immediately, for it had hardly been more than a year since he left the army. She asked him if he would like to give his testimony, and he happily assented. While he was telling the gospel 
and of his own experience of God's saving grace, he observed a rather well-dressed and intelligent-looking man in the audience, standing a little apart from the others. This gentleman took a card out of his pocket and wrote something on it, and as Ironside was concluding his message, walked up to the ring, as it were, the ring of people, and handed it to him. Still speaking, Harry glanced down at the card and promptly recognized the name of a man who had been given widely advertised addresses on the West Coast for some months. He had passed him the card. When he passed him the card, Harry realized for what purpose it was other than to give him his name. So he turned it over and read the penciled words. Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question of agnosticism versus Christianity in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. I will pay all expenses. Harry read the card aloud to the crowd. Then he answered his challenger. I'm very much interested in this challenge. Frankly, I've already been announced as the speaker at another meeting next Lord's Day afternoon at 3 o'clock, but I think it will be possible to finish in time to reach the Academy of Science by 4, or if necessary, to have another speaker take my place at the earlier meeting. Therefore, he continued, I'll be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. Namely, that in order to prove that this gentleman has something worth debating about, he will promise to bring with him to the hall next Sunday two people whose qualifications I shall give in a moment as proof that the agnosticism is of real value in changing human lives and building true character. First, he must promise to bring with him one man who was for years what we commonly call a down-and-outer. I'm not particular as to the exact nature of the sins that wrecked his life and made him an outcast from society, whether he was a drunkard or a criminal of some kind or a victim of any sensual appetite. He must be, however, a man who for years was under the power of some evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but who on some occasion attended one of this gentleman's meetings, heard him speak glorifying agnosticism and denouncing the Bible and Christianity, and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address were so deeply stirred that he went away from that meeting saying, henceforth I too am an agnostic, or words to that effect, and as a result of embracing that particular philosophy, he found that a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hates, and righteousness and goodness are henceforth the ideals of his life. He is now an entirely new man, a credit to himself and an asset to society, all because he is an agnostic. Secondly, Ironside went on to say, I would like this gentleman who has challenged me to debate to bring with him to the hall next Sunday one woman, and I think he may have more difficulty in finding the woman than the man who was once a poor, wretched, characterless outcast, the slave of degrading passions, and the victim of man's corrupting living. Perhaps, said Harry, nodding in the direction of San Francisco's infamous Barbary Coast, which was only a stone's throw from the spot where he was speaking, perhaps one who had lived for years in some notorious resort down there on Pacific Street, or in some other hellhole, utterly lost, ruined, and wretched. But this woman also entered one of this gentleman's meetings and heard him loudly proclaiming his agnosticism and ridiculing the message of the Holy Scriptures. And she listened to him. Hope was born in her heart, and she said, This is just what I need to deliver me from the slavery of sin. She followed this teaching. Then, until she became and had been living, she fled from the infamous place where she had been captive so long, and today, rehabilitated, she has won her way back to an honored position in society and is living a clean, virtuous, happy life, all because she is an agnostic. Now, sir, Harry continued, if you will promise to bring with you two such people, 
as examples of what agnosticism will do, I will promise to meet you at the Academy of Science Hall at four appointed next Sunday, and I'll bring with me at the very least 100 men and women who for years lived in such sinful degradation as I have tried to depict, but who have been gloriously saved through believing the message of the gospel which you ridicule. I'll have these men and women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ and as present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. Quickly turning to the Salvation Army Captain Ironside asked, Captain, have you any who would go with me to such a meeting? We can give you 40 at least, she exclaimed enthusiastically, all from this one corps, and we'll furnish a brass band to lead the procession. <laughs> Fine, Harry said. Now, sir, facing his challenger, I shall have no difficulty in picking up at least 60 others from various missions, gospel halls, and evangelical churches. So if you promise faithfully to bring two such exhibits as I have described, I will come marched in at the head of such a procession with the band playing onward Christian soldiers, and I'll be ready for the debate. His opponent, who had at least some sense of humor, smiled rather sardonically, and with a wave of the hand as if to say nothing doing, walked away from the scene of the meeting while the crowd applauded and cheered the street preacher who had met the challenge of the agnostic and put him to flight. They recognized immediately that no philosophy of negation, such as agnosticism, could ever make bad men and women good. And yet they knew from observation and experience that this is exactly what Christ has done for centuries and is doing every day. That's a testimony to the reality of the gospel that goes on. This probably took place in the early parts of the 20th century. Here we are in the 21st. God is still at work, shaping, molding, saving, transforming people. Ours may be a transformation that is not so dramatic, although we know from hearing testimonies of members of our own congregation that many have been saved from real times of struggle and difficulty and trial and oppression. This, Paul says, is what God is doing. This is his work in Christ. He takes us as a people enslaved by sin, frees us from this, and is making us into a new people. It's by his grace. We enter this by faith. We walk by faith. We live in dependence upon God to do what he says he will do. If, like Harry Ironside or John Newton, you have not yet called out to God, Lord save me. It's a simple prayer, but it will transform your life. Let's pray. Lord, for your grace, we thank you. Though we don't understand it, we thank you for the reality of it in our experience. And I pray for these brothers and sisters who are gathered here today, that this may be their experience, that they may know your transforming grace that we may be a people in whose lives your workmanship is more clearly seen. We depend upon you to do this. We recognize it is your power at work in us. The power that has created this world is making us new creatures in relationship with you. We thank you for the reality that old things have passed away the moment we enter into relationship with you and all things become new. May that be more and more, I pray, our portion and our experience as we go our ways this, these days and the days to come. We commit ourselves to you with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.